Welcome to the podcast for a better life. I'm Chris Johnson. If you're interested, both the book and film version of A Better Life are available at theatheistbook.com. On today's episode, I speak with David Neosi about his life, humanism, and going through difficult times without God. David Neosi is a lawyer, author, and former president of the American Humanist Association and the Secular Coalition for America. He was also featured in the book version of A Better Life. I asked him about his experience growing up in a Catholic family in Massachusetts. I uh, grew up in Massachusetts, uh, suburban Boston, in a Catholic household. I would describe my mother as devoutly Catholic, uh, my father as kind of nominally Catholic. Uh, Mom went to church, dad didn't. My grandmother was very religious, and I'd have to say most of the older people in my family were pretty religious. Uh, The younger people didn't seem so religious, but uh, you know, the we were definitely a Catholic family, if asked, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, I uh, kind of grew out of it, really. Uh, in high school, I started to kind of question it all, like I'd, I think most high school students do. And uh, by the time I was in college, uh, I think I was probably just kind of a vague deist. And uh, as I grew and matured and educated myself more, I just realized that uh, I'm really a secular humanist, and that's what I've been, what I would describe as uh, most of my adult life. So what do you think caused that shift when you were in college to, to shift away from religion? Well, it was really a very slow, uh, gradual process. I wouldn't even point to college as the pivotal event. I don't think there was a pivotal event, as a matter of fact. I think I just kind of uh, stepped away from religion you know, one step at a time, uh, starting as early as, uh, you know, middle school and high school. I just, uh, I went to a Catholic school growing up. Uh, elementary school anyway. And I actually liked the school and I thought I got a better education there than I did when I shifted to public school for junior high and high school. I'd have to say the Catholic school was the better, uh, honestly, the the better education. And, uh, you know, a lot of atheists and humanists don't like to hear that, but that's just the, the truth. The public schools I went to were just horrible. Truly horrible. Oh, wow. But, uh, but uh, you know, despite liking the, the school, uh, even in elementary school, I realized that a lot of what the nuns and the priests were saying, you know, just, just seemed kind of sketchy. It just it didn't quite seem to hold up. I had uh, questions about the Bible and religion that they really couldn't answer. And, you know, as you get older and you educate yourself more, you just uh, are able to examine those questions a little more thoroughly. And uh, I just uh, kept stepping away from religion right up into adulthood. So uh, if you ask me what was the catalyst of it, I guess I just have to say education. Uh, You learn more about the world, about history, about science, about nature, and uh, you realize that uh, organized religion is a uh, human construct, and the truths that supposedly underlie it 
are human constructs as well. They don't uh, stand up to scientific inquiry. Quite frankly, a lot of times they don't even stand up to common sense, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, that's why even as an elementary school student in a Catholic school, I, I realized that something wasn't quite right. Something didn't quite add up. I realized, you know, gee, what did I just happen to be born into the right religion? and uh, those people on the other side of the world uh, are all going to hell. Uh, that, that doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem like what a loving God would do. I mean, these are questions that elementary school children can ask and do ask. So, uh, yeah, that, that was the process for me. I think it's probably similar to the process for uh, a lot of other people. Did you talk to your parents about these questions that you had, and how did they answer them? Well, not too much, because I knew my mother was very devout, and she wasn't the type of woman who really wanted to intellectually examine religion. Uh, Dad, perhaps a little bit, but even with my father, I think I listened more than I talked and asked questions. And with my father, he's a, he was really a funny guy. And uh, he would not describe himself as an atheist or anything like that, but he was quick to criticize the church. Uh, he was frequently criticizing the church as just being out for money, you know, that sort of thing. Mm. I come from a, a working class family and, um, you know, dad never went to college, nor, nor did mom. Uh, you know, so there wasn't really a whole lot of deep intellectual discussion. It was more kind of common sense uh, Archie Bunker kind of reasoning, uh, you know, uh, and that's what I got from dad. There was a very healthy skepticism, but I would describe it as more of a practical skepticism than, you know, a real intellectual inquiry about, uh, you know, whether, uh, you know, whether God exists and the various arguments for and against God and that sort of thing. It was more like, you know, just the skepticism of corruption, uh, this uh, seeing through the, uh, the facade of this institution that is immensely wealthy uh, with people, you know, claiming a lot of power and authority. Uh, Dad was skeptical of all that. What were their thoughts when you finally, I guess, came out as an as an atheist or a non-religious person? Well, most of my adult life, I was just kind of a quiet, uh, agnostic, secular humanist. I really, like most uh, agnostics and uh, atheists, uh, I think I was really just quiet about it and didn't even think about it very much. I think uh, re supposedly religious families are filled with uh, uh, people who are not religious and who don't believe, but they are pretty quiet about voicing it because it's just one of those things, you know, in a lot of families, religion is just a topic that's not on the table for discussion. You let the devout practice, and if you don't feel like going to church, you stay home on Sunday, and if you don't feel like praying, you don't pray, and Nobody really says much about it. So uh, it never became even the slightest issue uh, until I became active in uh, secular activism with the American Humanist Association and the Secular Coalition and all that. But that, quite frankly, wasn't until I was uh, past 40 years old. <laughs> so, um, you know, most of my adult life, it was really uh, not an issue at all. Did you have siblings as well? 
Yes, uh, two sisters, both older. Uh, one sister died at uh, in her late 40s of ovarian cancer. Uh, she really wasn't very religious, um, although she would never describe herself as a non-believer either. I think she was, again, just uh, not really into the church, uh, spiritual but not religious, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But when it came right down to it, she raised her kids, uh, you know, she... Uh, she raised her kids, uh, I guess you would say, Catholic, uh, although not very ardently so. Mm -hmm. None of them are religious anymore. But uh, And then another sister who uh, was not very religious growing up at all. Uh, it's probably more religious now, but doesn't really talk about it. Oh, okay. So, so not very many uh, religious folks in the next generation that came from your parents. No, no, or at least the among the grandchildren, not so much so anyway. Uh, my kids are not religious. Uh, my nephews are not religious and quite, in fact, quite uh, zealous in their humanism as well. Uh, you know, I do have some other nieces and nephews from my other sister who uh, might be a little bit more religious, but no, and we're, we're not exactly carrying the torch of Catholicism forward, put it that way. <laughs> So you grew up in, the, in a very working class um, Italian American family. Yeah, Italian Irish. Italian Irish, right? Sorry. Um, so, what made you then want to go and and pursue a law degree? I was not in a community where you know the majority of kids went to college. Uh, far from it, uh, but. Uh, I really didn't have any options, so I went to a community college just really by default because there was nothing else to do. And uh, I did have a guidance counselor who thought that, you know, I was probably college material if I applied myself, which I really didn't do in high school at all. But, uh, you know, this guidance counselor suggested, well, Dave, if you're uh, not sure about what you want to do and you don't really have any job options or anything like that, maybe you want to go to uh, this community college. You could just drive to your classes, and it's a lot easier than high school in terms of scheduling. Uh, you know, you don't have to stay there all day like you do in high school. So I said, okay, I'll check it out. I tried it out. And actually, uh, once I started going, I really loved it. Uh, I, I, I realized right away that I really did like uh, college in that kind of educational environment. It was much different than high school with the social cliques and all that comes along with high school. So college really fit me very well. And I stayed in the community college for a couple of years, did very well. And then I transferred after two years and after getting my associate's degree, I transferred to Boston University and uh, majored in journalism there and finished out, got my bachelor's degree. And then I realized that law school would be kind of cool, uh, but I really wasn't in a position to go. I had actually uh, uh, had a daughter uh, while I was a freshman in college. Mm -hmm. And I, I uh, you know, so I had family responsibilities, that sort of thing, needed to get a job. That's one reason why I majored in journalism is, you know, as opposed to majoring in history or poli sci, with journalism, you can actually graduate and maybe get a job as a journalist. So that's what I did for a couple of years. And then after doing that for a couple of years, I uh, 
decided to go to law school nights. And I went to Suffolk University in Boston. That's actually a great story. I like that. Because I think a lot of people start out, they want to be a lawyer. And it's one of those things that you really have to start early on. But you kind of fell into it because you developed a, a, a desire and a passion for it later on. Uh, after college. That's great. Yeah, well, uh, I think uh, looking back, if I could have uh, stayed in journalism and uh, really lived uh, the uh, glamorous life of a journalist, you know, such as such as yourself, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, globetrotting and, and doing interesting stuff, uh, I might have stayed in it, but the journalism work that was available to me at the time, especially being geographically limited, uh, you know, with uh, uh, a young uh, baby and all that, um, uh, the, I was working for a chain of newspapers uh, in suburban Boston, making very little money, and the work was not really the kind of work you dream about doing, you know, going to selectmen's meetings and school board meetings. So uh, I did see uh, law as an option. Uh, it, it did interest me, and I did have a passion for it, definitely. I was always, even uh, even as a child, very interested in history and government and law and all that stuff. Uh, but, uh, you know, I might have stayed in journalism had there been options in journalism, but there really weren't. So law school really did seem to make some sense. And it's definitely a lot harder now for journalists than it, it was back then. As well. I had no I had no idea back when I was in journalism school that I was studying a field that was actually dying. <laughs> but uh, I was in journalism school uh, in the uh, mid 80s. So. Um, you know, there's a lot of lot of stuff going on in journalism then. In fact, broadcast journalism was kind of expanding, getting more prominent, and it just seemed like journalism was a really growing field. Who would have known, you know, a couple decades later that the you know all the newspapers would be closing and getting smaller? You know, the Boston Globe used to have a huge operation in uh, in Boston. The building was huge, right near the waterfront. Uh, now it, it's a few offices and a, and a few, you know, a very small staff relative to what it was back then. And every other newspaper in the country, if they're even open anymore, uh, it's the same thing. You know, newspapers that used to be 60 pages are now, you know, maybe 10 pages. It's uh, it's uh, terrible what's happened to the field. Yeah, it's really changed. Really, it's different a different landscape than it used to be. Absolutely. So what area of law did you want to go into? Well, I went into law not knowing any lawyers. As I said, I, I came from a blue-collar family, and there really were there were no lawyers in the family or friends of the family or anything like that. So I really didn't know much about the, the profession. And uh, I went to law school wanting to uh, learn more about it. I was certainly very interested in it. But uh, I kind of fell into uh, civil litigation because when I went to law school nights, I could no longer attend meetings at night as a journalist and as a reporter. Uh, I needed a nine to five job. So I just got a job in Boston working for an insurance company handling claims. And doing that, I, I learned the whole business of tort law as far as, you know, handling injury claims and, and how they, 
how the system processes them and how they are valued and how they're settled and all that. So I, I did that for four years while I was in law school. And so when I got out of law school, I was better qualified to practice in that area than a lot of lawyers were. Uh, who I just knew that area of law very, very well. So I got a job for a firm doing that on the defense side, actually defending insurance companies, but I didn't like that at all. So I, I did that for three years, and then I jumped over the fence and opened up my own practice re representing plaintiffs, uh, ordinary people who have been hurt. And that's uh, what I did for many, many years. In fact, I still have an office that does that uh, in addition to the constitutional work that I do. Yes, I've actually been to your office. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I, I, I remembered you had been to my home, but I forgot that you had been to my office. That's yes. right. Not as a not as a plaintiff or anything, but <laughs> I was not involved in a car, a car accident or anything. But uh, but, but if you yeah. are, you, you know where to find me. In the state of Massachusetts, absolutely. That's right. <laughs> um, so you were in. Uh, you had a civil practice. Um, you know, you were doing well. You had your own law firm. Why then a shift to being involved in secular activism? Well, I was always very interested in politics, governments, current affairs, that sort of thing. It's never been far from my radar. And quite frankly, working, doing the work that I was doing, while it was very rewarding, and I, I would never complain about it. I've always loved being self-employed, and I love having my practice, and I, I really enjoy the work. But I did want to be involved in uh, political and social activism. I really had reached a point in my career around the year 2000 um, where I had time for that. Uh, the practice was doing very well. I had time to devote myself to some sort of activism. And the question was, what kind of activism would I do? And the election of George Bush in 2000 was something that really pushed me in the direction of secular activism. And the reason for that is I had been watching for about two decades the religious right grow stronger and stronger from Jerry Falwell right up through the Christian coalition, all that, until in 2000, the election of George Bush just seemed like kind of the crowning achievement of the religious right. Uh, it was their way of saying, we're winning, uh, we're not going away. And it was a real wake-up call to me, and I know it was to a lot of other people as well. And my thinking on it was that, well, you know, I could work in politics for some Democrat or something like that, but uh, more substantial fundamental change was needed in society, I thought. And part of the answer would be more visibility 
for the secular demographic. Mm -hmm. Because one reason the religious right was growing so powerful was that even the opposition seemed to think that you needed to play the religion game. You know, Democrats often try to out-religion Republicans, which they can't do, of course, because how can you out-religion the religious right? I mean, mm -hmm. the, and I saw this dynamic happening in America, and I thought that part of the answer would be to raise the profile of secularism, uh, personal secularity, church-state separation, um, all of that. You know, we needed to show that you don't even need religion to be, to be good. You don't need religion to be an effective legislator or president or anything else. Uh, lots of Americans are not religious. They're just not talking about it. So I saw secular activism as a way of doing that and a way of uh, jumping into activism uh, which I wanted to do in a way that would be potentially very effective. I, I didn't want to just jump into activism for the sake of wasting my time and keeping myself busy. I really wanted to see change happen, and I saw the secular movement as a vehicle for change. What was your path towards getting involved in the secular movement? Well, I connected very early uh, with a gentleman I'm sure you've heard of, Herb Silverman. Mm -hmm. I had written up uh, a little kind of a pamphlet uh, with my thoughts on humanism and the need for humanist activism and secularism and all that. And Herb uh, and I connected after I wrote that. He liked it, and I expressed interest in being more active. And he said very early in probably our first conversation, well, you should run for the American Humanist Association board. And I said, oh, really? I said, okay, well, maybe I will. And he nominated me. I got on the, uh, the ballot. Uh, very shortly after that, there was an election, and, and I did get elected to the board, and it's been off and running ever since then. What was that experience like? Because had you you'd never been on a nonprofit board at that point? Was it a learning curve for you? What was your experience kind of jumping into that, that world? Yeah, it was uh, somewhat. Yeah, I don't think I had been on any board uh, prior to that. I had... Uh, done volunteer work and things like that. But uh, yeah, it was interesting. It was a learning experience. They made me treasurer right off the bat. So that was uh, another aspect of it that I, I needed to kind of learn about. But uh, the main thing that happened is I, I really met a lot of people. I, I was meeting new people constantly, the 12 board members, the staff of the AHA, and uh, getting involved and all that stuff. And it's the type of thing, if anyone out there has ever done uh, nonprofit work, you know that you're usually able to do as much as you want to do. Uh, if you want to really plunge into a nonprofit and, uh, you know, get your feet wet and, and immerse yourself in work, you can do that. And I was in a position back then, it was 2004 that I was elected to the AHA board, uh, I was in a position at that time to do that. I did have the time. Again, my practice was going well. And um, I 
really rolled up my sleeves and got involved in a lot of stuff. I had ideas that I wanted to implement uh, or at least talk about and debate with other people. And there were people available to do that and resources that the AHA had to do stuff like that. So I really dove into it and, and I have no regrets about it. I think the AHA is just a wonderful organization that has done a lot and uh, has the potential to do even a lot more. So I, I just, uh, you know, continued to be active. And then in 2008, they made me president of the AHA. I served two terms as president, really enjoyed that. In the midst of that, uh, I ended up getting a book deal uh, with Macmillan. Uh, so I, I wrote a couple books, uh, Non-Believer Nation and Fighting Back the Right, so it just, uh, you could describe it as a slippery slope, you know, you get involved <laughs> in a, uh, in a nonprofit if, if you allow yourself to, you know, really get sucked into it, uh, it can happen. It certainly happened to me. The gateway drug of being the treasurer on the board. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. yeah. What was your experience like? Because you, you liked it so much. You, as you mentioned, you were president for, for two terms. Is that right? I was, yes. It was great. I, I really enjoyed it a lot. I, I had uh, opportunities to do things that I never would have had an opportunity to do. I, I went down to Liberty University and debated um, humanism or Christianity, uh, which is the better uh, worldview. I, I had a debate down there doing that. It was it was a lot of fun. Wow. I, uh, I got to meet Gore Vidal a couple times before he died. Uh, one time I, he invited me to his house and I showed up and there was an opera singer there, a world-class opera singer, uh, singing just for him and his few friends who he invited over. <laughs> I'd never been to, to the opera, you know, even in the, I, I'm kind of ashamed to say, it doesn't make me sound very cultured, but I've never been to the opera, you know, even in Boston or New York. Mm -hmm. uh, here I am sitting in Gore Vidal's living room uh, with this world-class opera singer singing five feet in front of me. <laughs> I mean, it's just one of those experiences that, you know, I never would have had, uh, you know, sitting in my office here in suburban Boston. That's an amazing story. I didn't know that story before. That's great. Well, yeah, it was really something. It was uh, uh, just... Uh, Bizarre. He he died about six months later, about uh, not long after that too. So wow, what were what were your discussions with Gore Vidal like? It was very interesting. Uh, he he was a very interesting guy. Uh, I've uh, had an opportunity. I actually interviewed him before that for the Humanist Magazine, along with Jennifer Barty, the editor of the Humanist Magazine. Mm -hmm. uh, that was my first visit to Gore's uh, house, but. Um, the, we talked, you know, quite a bit about uh, current events. So there were other people, so it was more chit chat than anything. But uh, he was very much like his public persona. He was somewhat cantankerous, you know, a little bit uh, grouchy, but not 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 to individuals personally, but just his view of the world was. He was very fed up. Uh, he was a man who had lived to a ripe old age, but he, from a very early age, saw the direction that America was going. And unfortunately, I think his worries as a younger man uh, came true as an older man. Uh, he saw just how terrible things had gotten, you know, the, uh, the Bush presidency and, you know, the uh, Iraq war and all that stuff. 
he was very unhappy, I think, uh, to be honest. Uh, he was happy to be named the honorary president of the AHA, and he was very gracious about that. And, um, you know, he, he, on an interpersonal level, he was funny and, and he was uh, pleasant and, uh, you know, and a good host. But uh, his view of the world and, and his general sense of, you know, the, the, of where he was at as a person, I'd have to say he really didn't seem very happy. And he, he seemed like he was very disappointed in this country and in people. I think he, he just uh, saw the anti-intellectualism in America. He was very... Uh, frustrated with uh, politicians who are dishonest and only interested in themselves and, and, and bettering, you know, the, their personal interests, that sort of thing. I'm glad we've solved all of that since he, he died. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. If he could only see the progress. Oh, well, imagine what he would think of <laughs> Donald Trump as president. Oh, my goodness. I, I, I wish he was alive to write about it because he, you know, his best writing, uh, I, I was never really a huge fan of, of Gore Vidal's fiction. And that's mm -hmm. kind of what, what you see when you go to the bookstores. But his best writing is kind of his political pamphleteering. He's a He was a remarkable writer uh, on you know, uh, current events and, you know, a polemicist, I guess you would say, you know, mm -hmm. he was really uh, one of the best, uh, just the, his, his use of words and his skill uh, at that was remarkable. Yeah. And he also had that amazing, almost transatlantic accent, too, that you don't really hear much anymore from people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He came from a class of people uh, that was uh, much different than mine, put it that way. You know, uh, he, he, his uh, grandfather was a senator from Oklahoma, and he accompanied him because I think he was blind. Uh, he, Gore Vidal, as a child, accompanied him to the Senate chamber and, and helped him there. So, I mean, the, you know, he, he was related to Jackie O and, you know, just a, a class of people uh, that, you know, no wonder he had an accent that's a little different than yours and mine. <laughs> yeah, he he knew Amelia Earhart growing up. I mean, it's that's amazing, right. amazing yeah. life he led. Wow, yeah, that's really that's is. yeah, that's so incredible that you had that opportunity to to know him and speak with him, and that's that's great. Sure, yeah. But but you're right, absolutely. I mean, just as you were saying all of this about his unhappiness with the Bush era, I kept thinking, wow, like. <laughs> That's that pales in comparison to to now. I remember at the uh, at the inauguration of of Trump, um, seeing George W. there, you know, struggling in his his poncho, and kind of how, oh, that looked kind of adorable. And I'm thinking, wait, what? Like, why am I thinking like you know? I lived through the Bush era. I remember what that was like. But it's you know, compared to what we have now, it, it does seem, uh, you know, just. I feel like we've we've gone backwards so so far in terms of where we are now as opposed to where we were then. Yeah, for, from a policy standpoint, uh, I think it's you know probably about equivalent. Uh, it's it's probably. Uh, not much worse, not much better. I don't know. You, you could analyze it on an issue-by-issue issue basis and debate it. Uh, mm -hmm. But but I think really the, the difference is the, the way that it's a lot worse is just 
the environment, the atmosphere, the abrasiveness. Uh, you know, we, we have somebody who truly seems like an immature child in the White House. I mean, in some ways, I guess you could say George Bush seemed that way, but it was more like a naive, immature child with Bush. Uh, mm -hmm. With Trump, it's not so much a naive, it's more just kind of a bullyish, uh, abrasive unlikable uh, child, you know, and uh, I really point to that as the difference more than policy. I mean, from policy, from a policy standpoint, they're both awful. Uh, you know, Bush goes rushing into Iraq with no good reason, uh, you know, affecting millions of lives and, and, just causing more destruction. And, you know, there's the financial collapse at the end of his presidency, which was uh, just disastrous. Uh, you know, Trump, from a policy standpoint, I guess you could point to things that are nearly as bad as that. But the policy is awful. But it's really the person and, and the atmosphere that he has created. Um, you know, this president, this leader of the free world who was out there tweeting like a child. You know, I mean, I, I've seen, honestly, I've seen uh, children who uh, use social media with more grace than our president. So it's it's really awful. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, was, I was remembering the other day, there was a, a clip I watched of um, back on the, from the Bush era of Tony Snow, when Tony Snow was the um, press secretary. And he got into a little argument with David Gregory, who was the White House correspondent for NBC at the time. And they went back and forth a little bit. And the next day, Tony Snow came out, um, who was, as I said, George W. Bush's press secretary. And he said, um, I just want to apologize for yesterday. You know, David and I got into a little spat and we, I said some things which were inappropriate and the press is very important and an, ind an independent press is very important. And so I want to apologize to David and apologize to the, the press corps. And I was thinking, wow, like you would never see that today, would you? I know. Yeah, it's uh, we've got a really uh, extremely adversarial relationship between government and the press now. And, you know, they teach you in, in journalism school that an adversarial relationship is good. But uh, the way that it's got now is it's true hostility. There, there's a president who really has no interest in in even having a healthy press corps. He just wants a propaganda arm. And, uh, you know, is the, the type of person who certainly would make himself dictator if he could. Hopefully, systemically, we are well enough protected so that that won't happen. And I, I don't think that it will happen. But I think, you know, for perhaps the first time, we have somebody in office who would love to do that if he could. <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. Wow. Um, how have things changed at the AHA under Trump? Well, that's an interesting question. I think the the main thing is just this awareness that you never know what the next uh, insult is going to be. You, you don't know, you know, for example, Jeff Sessions with his uh, with, with this panel that he just created on religious freedom, you know, stuff like that pops up. Uh, almost on a daily basis now. Uh, the president will say something or his administration will do something, um, you know, to 
uh, either offend the LGBT community or defend the non-religious, uh, offend the non-religious community. And, mm-hmm. uh, you just don't know. And you have to be kind of constantly on guard and constantly ready to react. Whereas I think in the Obama years, we might've been in a, in a position to sit back and think about what we might be able to propose so that the administration might be able to actually do something positive for us. Uh, Instead, there's no chance of that happening now. So we are more on the defensive, uh, just waiting for the next bomb to be hurled our way that we're going to have to deal with and respond to and react to. It's an interesting situation, too, because from what I can see, Trump is not at all religious himself. I mean, whether he believes in God, I'm not sure. But when he talks about Christianity, for example, which is what he professes to be, um, he doesn't know the first thing about what he's talking about. It's really ironic the way that the Christian right has become his most loyal constituency. Uh, they are, you know, 80% in his favor uh, in the election, and that support really has not diminished. It's by far the strongest demographic category in his column. And the irony uh, that this man who has in every way lived a life that is just repulsive to the tenets of, of Christianity, uh, you know, uh, materialistic, proud, mean <laughs> i mean mm-hmm. j- just n- name a sin and and he uh you know has a strong record of of uh, committing it and uh endorsing it so it, it's really just baffling it, it truly is and uh, apparently the main reason why they do it is because the one issue that's so important to them abortion you know, he's going to nominate the right judges and also opposing LGBT rights. So I, I think they are that loyal to him, uh, mainly over the judiciary, you know, knowing that uh, despite his character flaws, and that's putting it mildly, but uh, despite those flaws, uh, they are going to get the judiciary they want. And they are smart enough to know that the judiciary uh, – carries tremendous weight in this country. Uh, it, uh, there's a very good chance it'll overturn Roe versus Wade. It might even overturn the recent progress on LGBT rights. And who knows what else might be on the horizon. Are you concerned about the future? Are you optimistic that things can turn around? What are your thoughts on that? Well, in the near term, I'm not very optimistic at all. Uh, I I think there are going to be a lot of problems, uh, not just in the judiciary, but perhaps especially so in the judiciary, because uh, I think the Supreme Court might finally be reaching a tipping point where uh, the conservative majority is going to be strong enough and reliable enough uh, that a lot of damage can be done. And... uh, you know, there. I think some of the damage hasn't even been discussed very publicly yet. But if you want an idea, you could just go to the Congressional Prayer Caucus, which is like the uh, uh, on Capitol Hill, the club for the Christian right, and 
they have a record of supporting policy initiatives that have never been seriously considered because they've never had the clout on Capitol Hill to do it. But the a Supreme Court with a strong conservative majority could bring about uh, a lot of what they want for, you know, and uh, I, I think uh, there's real, real things to, to worry about uh, as far as church-state separation. The main test for church-state separation in the courts for uh, almost 50 years has been called the lemon test. It's a analysis that the court does to consider whether a statute or a governmental practice violates the establishment clause and offends the wall of separation, church mm -hmm. and state. Uh, there's been a lot of talk on the conservative side about how lemon needs to go out the door and they need a test that's more uh, accepting of government and religion. Uh, with this conservative majority, you could definitely, uh, there's definitely a possibility that the lemon test will go out the door. And if that happens, uh, then all aspects of church-state separation are up for reconsideration. And that's just one thing. There, there really are others that, that could be very destructive from a standpoint of uh, a secular humanist concerned about public policy. Yeah, those of us in secular humanism, activism, atheist activism, are very busy nowadays because of everything going on. Yeah, yeah, sure. But you ask, am I optimistic or pessimistic? I think mm -hmm. uh, in the grander scheme of things, I'd like to stay optimistic. I think, you know, the human animal, so to speak, uh, has a lot of potential. And I think we do have the ability uh, to make life better. And we are doing that. You know, look at Steven Pinker's books. Uh, despite all the, the uh, terrible things that we see happening, uh, technology continues to make life better for most humans humans or many humans. I mean, it's slow progress and it's not, not uh, you know, it's not the world we want to live in yet, really. But, um, you know, I think uh, technology, science and natural innate human goodness <laughs> uh, hopefully will carry the day in the long run. And I think, you know, the younger generation too, the generation behind me, really coming up and and you know, they're a lot more accepting and liberal and open and i think that's going to change things as well i think so i, I think so the, i i certainly hope so speaking of the younger generation um in addition to your daughter you also have two sons with your your now wife and you've been going through a situation recently with with one of your sons with ben um can you talk a little bit about um what what's been going on yeah the well uh the short version of it is uh, Ben is going to be 19 years old this month. Um, he's uh, been fighting cancer since 2014 um, when he was uh, he had just turned 15 years old. Uh, and uh, he was diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma, which is a bone cancer, in his scapula, which is your shoulder blade. And uh, he went through a very rigorous treatment regimen at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston uh, back in 2014, 2015. That was his freshman year of college, of high school, I'm sorry. And um, they did a great job at Dana-Farber. Uh, he 
fought a very, very difficult fight, uh, and the chemo regimen was just uh, intense. It wasn't even just an ordinary chemo regimen. It was an intensive chemo regimen. And uh, he did fantastic. Uh, and uh, as a patient, I'd have to say, he, he was incredible. Uh, just uh, the, the dream patient for <laughs> an oncologist because he was uh, just uh, not complaining. He just did what he was told. He, he uh, was really uh, just uh, a model patient. Uh, and the treatment back in 2015 was successful. He, he uh, was found to be disease-free. Um, and that stayed the case until uh, earlier this year, uh, back around March or so. Uh, they did routine scans, and they found that it, it, it was recurring. So now he's back in the middle of it again. Uh, he's uh, doing a different kind of chemo regimen now, but he just graduated high school, and he is, uh, again, being – he's uh, mo older now. He's a young man, not a, not a you know, young teenager. He's a young man, uh, but he, again, is uh, just being incredible. He, he uh, is uh, has a – great outlook and just uh, is uh, fighting the good fight and uh, they seem to think it's going great. In fact, uh, they removed the scapula this time and recently did scans and he's again disease free, but they still want him to do chemo uh, until uh, probably sometime next year. Oh, wow. Wow. I mean, it sounds like, I mean, what an ordeal not just for him, but for the whole family as well to go through. Oh, yeah, but especially him. I mean, he's the one. You, you, I don't know if you've been around people, you know, uh, going through chemotherapy, but it's very tough. I mean, the, the, the therapy he had back in 2014-15 was, uh, it was a compact regimen, so you didn't even really have much time to rest in between cycles. But uh, this time, it's more of an ordinary regimen. But even an ordinary regimen is just really, you know, it's like getting hit by a bus. Uh, he does the treatments five days in a row. And you know, by the end of it, it's, uh, you know, how do you even get up out of bed? He does. It's remarkable. He, he gets up and uh, tries to stay as active as he can. But, uh, you know, after a few days when the cycle is over, he's up on his feet and going out with his friends again and, you know, uh, living as normal a life as he can. Uh, unfortunately, he's going to have to take a gap year next year. He was supposed to start at UMass Amherst uh, as an engineering major. But uh, because of the chemo that he's going to be doing, he'll uh, have to take a gap year on that. But uh, but at the end of it all, uh, it'll be well worth it, uh, you know, to be healthy and back to college. A lot of people have said to me over the years, talking about atheism and saying things like, well, you know, you haven't been through a traumatic experience like, you know, like like a child having cancer or something like that. And, you know, if you if you go through something like that, then uh, then you'll believe in God. Um, but I mean, you've you and your whole family have gone through this um, from a, a secular humanist perspective. What is that? What has that been like? Um, not having a faith to rely on, but um, having something else instead. Well, 
I would describe it as just very natural. Uh, I don't know how anyone could look at a child with cancer and say, oh, well, this is God's will. Uh, if anything, I think if I was a believer, I'd be less likely to be a believer uh, <laughs> after see, you know, what kind of God would give an innocent child cancer? I mean, that's ridiculous. And, you know, another thing that I'll, I'll mention, I think this is actually quite important, is that, you know, you walk into the Dana-Farber uh, Jimmy Fund Clinic, which is their pediatric oncology clinic, and, you know, every morning it's filled with families with children who have cancer. And most of them are there to get chemo or some kind of treatment. And it's really quite a scene, you know, a lot of bald children running around and all ages, you know, little infants and teenagers and all that. But, you know, you look around and you see a cross section of the world. You see Muslims, you see Christians, you see Jews, and you see atheists and agnostics and humanists. And I'm not just saying that. I mean, there are families there every day with the, the mother is wearing a burqa. Uh, you know, there are Jewish families there every day. There are certainly, well, we've met many patients along the way. I mean, we've been going there now for years. So we meet other families and we find out, you know, where they are, where, where they're coming from. And, you know, there are Catholic families. Protestant families. It, it is so ridiculous to think that somehow, you know, a certain kind of faith is going to uh, protect you from this natural disease. Uh, it's it's very puzzling to me that people would turn to religion. I mean, I guess if you believe in God and you believe in miracles, then you can overlook the fact that God allowed this to happen to your child and therefore pray to this God to, uh, you know, even though he allowed it to happen, now take it away. But to me, that would just be so insane sincere and so unnatural uh, wh why would I ever turn to religion so that that's mm -hmm. how I'm looking at it and I think that's how most humanists would what has helped you get through that experience through I mean it's like I can't even imagine the what what you and and your family's been through you yeah. know having to see all this what is what is what's helped you get through that I would just say sticking together as a family, you know, it's sticking together where uh, we we love each other and uh, of course we, we all want the best for Ben and uh, he's just been great. He, he really, uh, I can't say enough about how positive he has been and quite frankly, if he had turned to religion, it wouldn't, you know, I, I'm not going to he can he's now an adult and even as a child i would let you know he can believe what he wants to believe and it's not going to change the family dynamic but he does happen to be a secular humanist and he's not a believer and uh you know he thinks it's kind of amusing when you know he gets a little card from relatives who say they're pray they're praying for him and that sort of thing uh he knows they mean well and he doesn't judge them but uh you know he has approached this as a humanist himself i guess you'd say uh and um you know, we just stick together as a family and you have that support. I mean, that that's what's real. You know, your relationships are real. The love you have in a family is real. And 
uh, you know, it's it doesn't really take more than that. If you want to believe in superstition and supernatural stuff beyond that, uh, you can, and maybe some people get some kind of value out of it, but uh, that's not where we're coming from. David, thank you so much for joining me today. Sure, my pleasure. Always great to talk to you, Chris. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please visit patreon.com slash theatheistbook. For more information about the book and film versions of A Better Life, visit theatheistbook.com.